There's been very little peace in the world in the last hundred years. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you go all the way back, starting with about World War I, there's been a lot of death and a lot of violence and a lot of wars just all over the world. World War I followed a few years later by World War II, and then you look at the Korean War that happened after that, and then Vietnam War and, and all of that. And then there's all sorts of regional things that have gone on. There's the, the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. There's uh, some, some conflict in Bosnia. There's been recently chemical weaponry used in Syria. There's a lot of um, frustration and conflict and violence uh, all over the world. Israel, Palestine, just a, a lot of things going on. And, and I think you could say all of that looks like a big lack of peace on earth, right? There's not a lot of peace. Uh, there's periods of peace, but all, our track record sort of globally is not very good. There's also not a lot of peace in our nation. I don't know if you've noticed, but people are really outraged almost all the time, it seems like, in our country. And we're upset about all sorts of things, not in warring with other countries, but just even within our own our own nation of people kind of at each other and just frustrated, and there seems to be no sort of national peace, really. Even in our own city, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of problems, and, and, it, and you don't have to look too far in the city of Richmond to see that there are large areas of Richmond that have no peace. In fact, even in our own church, there was violence in, in, in one of the neighborhoods of people in this church within the last, within the last seven days. So there's, there's a lack of peace even in a, in a, in a citywide scale. And maybe you live in a good neighborhood or maybe you feel relatively safe or at peace in your own home, but there's probably still reasons to not have peace right there in your family. You, maybe you are estranged from your brother and you're wondering if you're going to get together with him over Christmas. Maybe you have a broken relationship between you and your dad and there's a lack of peace in that relationship. There's, there's no global peace, there's no uh, national peace, there's no city peace, and there's really like no family peace. And maybe you're just feeling at this time of year, as many people do, maybe you're just feeling very anxious and maybe a little bit depressed. The, the rate of depression is highest uh, in America in, in December. And so maybe in, in all of the noise and all of the things going on around you, you're feeling this internal sense of unrest and you're not feeling peace at all. So when I get up here and talk about Jesus bringing peace to the world, or we, we sing about peace on earth and, or earth and mercy mild, when we, we sing about that, um, maybe that sounds kind of silly to you, because it does to me at times. I'm like, really? Peace on earth? Is that like a thing? Like, if Jesus brought that a couple thousand years ago, like, I'm not feeling it. I'm looking around and not seeing a bunch of it. Like, what is that? What is that all about? So as we go through Advent, um, we're looking at these different ideas each week, hope last week, and we're going to talk about peace this morning as we await the arrival of Jesus that we celebrate on, on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day as we celebrate the Christ Mass. I want to talk about what peace means for us today by looking at what it actually meant when it was proclaimed to the world when Jesus is born. So I want us to look at maybe one of the most famous scriptures in all of the birth of Jesus story. And the reason it's so famous is because Linus says it in the Peanuts movie uh, to Charlie Brown when he, wants to tell, when he wants to tell Charlie Brown what Christmas is really all about because uh, Charlie Brown's all frustrated and Linus stands up and delivers it. So I'm, I'm going to read it to you and you probably know, you, you probably have heard this before because you've seen that before. Uh, Linus does it in the King James. I'm going to do it in the ESV. It's a little different. And so there'll be a couple words that'll be, be different. But I want to read to you 
from Luke chapter 2, um, this situation that happens where Jesus is born and there are these shepherds that are watching their flock out in the fields and these angels appear and it's a pretty, pretty wild scene. So Luke chapter 2, we'll start with verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased." All right, so you're a shepherd. It's a lonely job, kind of hanging out there. Maybe you've got a few buddies out there. It's late. It's quiet. The sheep are just kind of doing their sheep thing. I don't really know what sheep do. I think they just stand there uh, mostly. So that's about as fun as you can imagine that to be. And you're out there one night, and this night's like any other night, except on this night, um, an angel appears. And you have a bit of a freak out when you see an angel, as people do. And angels show up in the Bible like they do. They tell people, don't freak out, don't be afraid, because that's the first thing you're going to do when you see an angel. It's very terrifying, like, what is going on? Who is this? And the bright light or, or whatever it is. So the, they have a little freak out. And the angel says, no, no, it's cool. Here's what's happening. The Savior has been born. The Savior you've been waiting for, the consolation of Israel, like we talked about last week. The, the Savior is born, uh, and this is going to be amazing. Here's how you know I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to find an, a, a go, go, to, go to the city of David, go to Bethlehem, uh, you're going you're gonna to see a baby. Here's your sign, okay? Here's your little, like, blues clues to figure out where, anyone, blues clues? Okay, child of the, what, 90s? Okay, so um, here's your little clue. You're going to find a baby in swaddling cloths. That's not unusual. You wrap up babies. They probably have the same towel uh, little that the hospital gave them, like that you guys get. Like, we all had that same one. I've seen your baby pictures. It's the same one my kids were wrapped in. Like, those are like standard, I don't know if Cisco issues though or whatever, but whatever they had back then, you're going to find a baby wrapped in cloth. That's not unusual. Here's the unusual part. The baby will be in a manger, which is an animal's feeding trough. And, and, and the shepherds will go, well, that's weird. Okay, let's go look for the one baby that would actually be in an animal's feeding trough. That's a weird thing. That's, that's kind of their, their sign. And then suddenly, these angels appear, a multitude of the heavenly host, it says, so more, more than one angel, and they say, glory to God in the, in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so they, they show up, and they say, glory to God in the highest, and they, and they talk about this idea of peace. There's peace on earth because Jesus has shown up. So what kind of peace are they talking about? Well, let's talk about what it's not. They're not talking about international conflict coming to an end. Remember, if you know history, this is a period in, in the Roman Empire called the Pax Romana, the, peri- the period of Roman peace. There's not a lot, actually, of, of conflict in the Roman Empire at that time. So they're not, they're not talking about this international, or even, and they're not talking about you know, peace within your family. In fact, 10 chapters later in the same book, in Luke chapter 12, listen to what Jesus says about peace, about that kind of peace. Listen to what he says. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Listen to this. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Like if you heard that and you'd heard the thing about the angels, you'd be like, yes, you totally are here to give peace on earth. I heard that's what they said when you, were, when you showed up. He goes, no, 
I tell you, but rather division. Oh, great, we need more of that. Thank you. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Listen to this. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He goes through the whole family relationships. He says, look, do you think that's the kind of peace I'm bringing, like any sort of like international peace? Like, no, I'm, I'm bringing division. Even in your own house, there's going to be division because of me. I'm not bringing this kind of like harmony and peace thing that you think of within, within your own home. And some of you know what that's like because you're married to someone who doesn't share your faith. And there's a division there. You're in team Jesus and they're not on team Jesus. And that causes a problem. For some of you, you're the only follower of Jesus in your family. So when you get together with people at Christmas, you're all like, Joseph and Mary, right? And they're like, no, not that. That's not what we do. We do this other thing. And you're like, oh, come on. Like, this is what it's really about. And there's a division within your own family because you're the only follower of Jesus there. Following Jesus is polarizing. It's not like, you know, I'm on Team Jesus and everybody's with me and this is all great and we're all happy and it's all wonderful. No, when you make a stand there and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, this is polarizing. This puts you, in some sense, there's division there. It puts you at odds even with people in your own family or at work or whatever. Jesus is polarizing. Walk into your office Christmas party this year and be like, guys, guys, guess what? Christmas is all about Jesus. Let me tell you about it. And they're going to be like, please don't do that, you know, because the, the, the truth of the story, what, it, what it's really all about, Jesus, is very polarizing. Christianity historically has not brought peace to the world, right? There are countries that are called Christian countries, whether a country can really be Christian or not, but there are countries that have a, a, a strong Christian underpinning, and they go to war also. And there's been a lot of conflict in areas that you would think of as historically or, or, or basically Christian countries. So it's not like Jesus bringing peace on earth meant that everyone who's going to follow him automatically becomes peaceful and all the nations are peaceful. Like that, That's not how it works. Even in very Christian places, at the height of the conflict between the Protestant and the Catholics in Northern Ireland, um, there was a joke that used to go around that a guy in Belfast, he, there's a guy walking down the street and another guy jumps out and he points a gun at him. And he points a gun at guy, you know, he's going to rob this guy and he says, hey, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And the guy says, neither, um, I'm an atheist. And, and the guy with the gun says, yes, 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 but are you a Protestant or a Catholic atheist, Right? There's like, because there's no peace there, right? There's no, there's just conflict. It's not like being a Christian is a, is a ceasing of all violence and, and, and all that. that. That's not the kind of peace that Jesus is actually uh, being, that is being promised here. It's also not, uh, the peace of Christ or, or peace on earth because of Christ is not this internal sense of peace, although we like to think it is. It's not like this warmth or bliss or this like, oh, it all just feels so good, um, no, it's, it's not like that a- at all. Now, that isn't to say that following Christ doesn't bring some peace. I think if you read things like Philippians 4, where Paul talks about the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, certainly there is that. We follow him, we get to know him, and we align our life with him. And yes, there is a sense of peace that is available to us, and in some cases, it surpasses anything that you can understand, that, that, that it, and it's real, and it's true, and it's very present for us. But that is also not the kind of peace that is being promised in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus comes to to the world. Look at the wording again. Look at verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom 
he is pleased. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, so he's bringing, um, he's, he's talking about this peace, and, and actually the wording of it should sound weird to us because of the Charlie Brown version, probably, where we think that should say, and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men, right? Peace, goodwill towards men. That's, that's the way we're used to that verse reading. And this, this translation says, peace among those with whom he's pleased. It's a little weird. If you actually translate it from the Greek literally, it would, it would say something like, peace toward men to whom God has goodwill on whom his favor rests. That's the, that's the full version of what is being said there. Well, what is that about? What are they talking about? Well, notice it's objective and it's specific. We're talking about peace and it's something um, on earth and it is somehow connected to God's favor on us. There's something going on there. This is the kind of peace spoken of earlier in the book of Luke. Jesus' uncle, Zechariah, uh, his, his wife gives birth to John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin. Um, and listen to what Zechariah says about how his son will be when his son's, um, you, you know, before his son's grown up to do all these things. Listen to the, what Zechariah says about John the Baptist. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's talking about John the Baptist, and he said, you're, gonna, you're going to lead the way for Jesus, and Jesus is going to uh, bring light to those of us who are in darkness, and he's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about being made right with God. He's not talking about a geopolitical peace or any sense of internal calm. He's talking about our relationship with God. This is the kind of peace that Jesus brings in his life, that people who are separated from God can now be brought near to God. People who were at war with God can now be reconciled to God. So what does that mean? You're at war with God? Like, that's weird. Like, I would think for most of us, we're sitting here going, I'm not at war with God. I don't remember ever being at war with God. Surely I would know if I was at war with God. So, so if I say Jesus brings peace and you're no longer at war with God, you're like, um, thanks? I, I didn't know that was a, a thing. But this is important for us to understand. The scripture talks about this a lot. There are basically two states of, 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 of humanity. There is in Christ, we are a follower of him, we are baptized into him, we have given our lives to him, we are with him, uh, we are team Jesus in that sense, we are in Christ, or we are outside of Christ. We're not interested, we're not following him, we're not, we're not with him. Um, and and and. What Christ does at the cross is he opens a way for us to be with him and with God. Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 1, um, and, and I want you to read because he's talking about what Jesus does for us, specifically uh, how we were separated from him and how we are brought near to God through Jesus on the cross, through this kind of peace. Paul's speaking about it in Colossians 1. Listen to what he says. He says, he's talking about Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's, that's, that's bold talk about Jesus, right? And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that is 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, listen to this, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, he made peace, by the blood of his cross. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. He, he says this, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We don't know what God looks like. You and I have never seen him face to face, most likely, right? So you haven't seen God like visibly. So you don't know what God looks like. And Christianity is unique in, in that it says, look, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. You want to know what God acts like, look at how Jesus acts. You want to know what God thinks about, look at the things that Jesus is thinking about and talking about. Like, Follow him and you, and because in seeing him, you will actually see God. He is the image of God walking around on earth. It also says he's the head of the church. That means at area 10, if you were to draw an org chart of our church, at the top of that thing is Jesus. And that is true of every Christian church in the world. It's certainly true of any church that claims to be followers of Christ. He's at the head of, of the thing. He's, he's, he, he's over the whole thing. And, and then it says... All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. That should be shocking to us because it was shocking to them when they first heard it. The idea that God lives fully in a person was mind-blowing in the ancient world. Maybe we've gotten used to it. We kind of talk about, yeah, this God came down and we sing songs about it or whatever. But in the ancient world, they were sitting there going like, no, that's not possible there's the realm of the gods, there's the spiritual realm, and then there's the earthly realm, which is very, like, dirty and, and just kind of common. So you have, like, this higher level and lower level kind of thing in Greek thought in the ancient world. That's the way people were thinking about the world. So the idea that they would intersect in a person who is fully God and fully man, like, that is mind-blowing. And, and it should actually shock us a bit. This is, this is what God has done. He is, his fullness appears in Jesus. And then what does it say there? In verse 20, it says, um, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is going to make peace, is what Paul says here, and he does it through uh, the cross. That, that peace that he's talking about there is the same peace that was promised to the shepherds out in the fields. It's by his blood on the cross. We'll get back to that in a minute. Look at what it says next, though, and it describes us, okay? It says, verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Well, that's, that's sure, he's writing to the church in the city of Colossae to, to new believers, but it could also be written to us as well. Here, here's what he's saying. All of us, before we knew Jesus, when we were outside of Christ, this is what it was. We were alienated from God. We were separated from him. We were hostile in our minds. We were doing evil deeds. And he's dealt with that on, on, on the cross. Now that doesn't land well on us. I mean, you read that and, and you go, well, that's a little harsh. And I think it doesn't land well on us for two reasons. Number one is we don't think of our, e our deeds as evil. We don't think that the stuff we've done is evil. And number two, we don't think that anything that we've done would actually alienate us in some way from our creator. So we read this and we're kind of like, I hear you, bro. I hear what you're saying, Paul, but here's the reality. 
before I was a Christian, I didn't do evil things. I just did regular things. They weren't evil. Evil people do evil things. I've got a scale that I grade that stuff, and there are like the super evil people, and then there's me, and I am slightly above average. Like, that's the way we look at the world, right? If there's like a a bell curve, we're kind of in the middle of that thing. There's like the really evil people. There's the super good people. I know I'm not one of them. There's the super evil people who like, I don't know, harm animals and all the, you know, and they talk too loud in movie theaters. And there's the super evil people over there. There's the really, and I'm not either of them. I'm right there in the middle. And I'm probably just right of middle. I'm slightly above average. This is the way we look at ourselves. So when, when Paul says, look, here's who you were. Before you knew God, you were hostile to him. You were alienated. There was a separation there. You were doing evil deeds where like my deeds just weren't that evil. But that's where we don't realize that our grading system is broken. We're grading grading this thing on the curve. And that's not how God looks at it. He looks at us and, and he looks at what we've done. And he's like, we've all sinned. You've all done it. We've all blown it in some way. We have all done things to show that we are hostile towards God. We have sinned not just against other people, because I bet you can think of sins against other people, ways you've wronged someone, but we've sinned against uh, a God as well in all of that. Like if, like, so think of it this way. If I hurt my wife, I'm not just hurting her. It's actually a sin against her entire family. And you know that because she may forgive me. They're going to take a lot longer to get over it, Right? Doesn't that happen? Like, they're, they're going to take a lot longer to come around to it because when you sin against someone, it has wider implications and it has farther reach than that. You are hurting more than just that person. And in the same way, when we sin against one another, we are damaging our relationship with God, God as father and us as his children. When we sin against his other children, we are sinning against him as the father All, also. So the pain is deep, the sin is far-reaching, and it breaks our relationship with a holy God. He is holy and pure, and we're not. I don't care how good you've been, how many merit badges you earned as a Girl Scout, how many employee of the quarters that you've made over the last year or two. I don't care if you're the person in your family that everyone in, in your extended family thinks is the one person in the family that has it all together. All of our all-togethers are not together enough for God. Like all of our, I've got this under control, does not make us righteous before God. It does not put us in relationship with a a loving, perfect God. We we are all broken, and this brokenness means we don't have peace, objectively. I don't mean like how you feel. I mean, we don't have peace with God. We are at war with him. Now, for some people, that's really obvious. The, the, uh, The way the new atheists have been characterized in in the last, I don't know, decade or so is, and and maybe this is sort of a modern view of atheism, God does not exist and I hate him, right? That that goes back probably to Nietzsche, right? Like, God doesn't exist and I really hate him. Like that, you get that vibe of like, oh, when Paul says, outside of Christ, you are alienated and hostile towards God, certainly we all know people that we would describe as hostile towards God. Like, they're not interested. So if the modern view is God is, does not exist and I hate him, maybe a more postmodern view that a lot more people find themselves in is God does not exist and I miss him, right? That, that kind of thing. We feel a little bit haunted by, by something, even if we don't necessarily believe in God. But I think there's this whole category of people who are not hostile towards God. And if you think back to your own life, 
outside of, of coming to Christ and being in a relationship with him, were you hostile towards God? Would you describe it that way? Probably not. It's probably more like God just wasn't on your radar, right? You just didn't care. You were just doing other things. You were chasing this and school and relationships and money and whatever, whatever it is you're doing. You're doing stuff and you're busy and God just doesn't factor into your equation. So it's, you wouldn't say, man, I was hostile towards God. He's just like, I was a little bit apathetic. And I, and I really had to think about that. I was like, look, if you're apathetic towards God, are you still hostile, doing evil deeds, like he says? Are you still alienated from him? I think you are. I was talking it through with my wife, and she said, hey, remember, what is the opposite of love? Well, I would think, oh, hate, right? It's not hate. It's apathy. Because if you hate someone, at least you're emotionally invested there. You know, you may be emotionally invested in a different direction, but there's, some, there's something in you that's engaged and cares. But when you're apathetic, you're like, you don't even register on, like, that's, that's where we're at. You don't even, you don't even matter to me. That's what, that's what apathy is. And so both active hatred of God and just apathy towards him, both of those things are a form of hostility. Both of those things make us enemies of God. Both of those things draw a line between us and God and say, you're over there and I either don't care or I, I actively hate you over there. There's hostility there. There's a brokenness. We are at war with God. It reminds me, C.S. Lewis um, was in the camp of God doesn't exist and I hate him. And, and one of the reasons he became a Christian is he reflected on his atheism and he said, I was mad at God for not existing. And he thought, well, that's, that's pretty weird that, that I would feel that way. Um, but that's where some of us are. We're, we're either hostile or apathetic. And what has Christ done to fix that? Verse 21, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach by him. Jesus, on the cross, the baby that was born, grew up to be a man, and on that cross, he took all of our sins, and he made us in a right relationship with God. He paid for our sins for all the ways that we have blown it, and he made us right with God. This is what the peace at Christmas is talking about. It's not global conflict. It's not your, your internal warmth. It's not like eggnog, warm it or something. It's not, it's not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about there was a division between us and God, and Jesus has made it right, and you can be in a right relationship with him. He has made you holy and blameless and above reproach. You weren't those things on your own. None of us were. But when God looks at you, you give your life to him, and he looks at you, and he goes, now you're blameless. Now you're above reproach. Now you're holy. I made you that way. When you gave your life to me, this is, this is what Christ does. He makes us blameless. And this is a unique thing in Christianity. Other religious systems in the world tend to function on some sort of merit. If I do enough good things, God will then be in my debt and will be pleased with me. If I um, follow this, this eightfold path or, or pursue these five pillars or if I follow all of these laws, if I check off enough boxes, then... I'll have done enough stuff, and then God will be in my debt. He'll look down at me and be, be like, you were so good, you did so many good things that um, I, I have to like, let you into heaven or paradise or whatever. Like, we can be in a relationship now because you've earned it, pal. That's the way most world religion and systems work. And honestly, that's the way a lot of Christians think it works in Christianity. You need to, you, you know, you need to come to Jesus, but you better really get your act together 
because otherwise God's going to be really ticked. Like, we're, we don't have an eightfold path or five pillars or 612 laws, but we got a couple other ones that we'll let you know about after you sign the papers that you need to do these things, and then God will be in your debt, and he will be pleased with you. And that's a misunderstanding of God's grace. God's grace starts with, you were loved. Now, now go live as someone who is loved, not do all these things, and then you will be loved. This is the kind of thing that Jesus does for us. The angel doesn't show up and say to the shepherds, glory to God in the, on the highest, and Jesus is here, and he's going to show you how to get right. It's not what he says. He says Jesus is here, and he's bringing peace on earth and mercy mild. What's the next line? God and sinners reconciled. That's what it's talking about. That's what happens when, when Christ came to earth. He reconciles us to God. Now, this isn't just theological. I know it may sound that way to you this morning, and it isn't just ph- philosophical. I think this is actually intensely real and very practical. Jesus brings an end to the conflict between us and God. And will that feel like peace? No, not always. Sometimes your emotions come and go, and sometimes you're in a good mood about it, and you're feeling very warm and peaceful, and other times you're very anxious and you're not. Will it bring an end to all hostility here on earth? Will everyone lay down their guns? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is bringing that, at least not yet. I think that day will come. But positionally, our, our place with God has changed because of what Jesus has done, and we can be at peace. This is practical, and it's real. And and do you know where it's most real, where this stuff really matters? At a funeral. When you're at a funeral, what you believe about God and are you at peace with God, suddenly that stuff really matters. I was part of a, a performing a funeral yesterday, and um, it was one I, I wish I never had had to do. Um, I, I think you could say of all, all the funerals, you sort of feel like, oh, man, this is, I, I wish this wasn't happening. But, but yesterday... Uh, I did the, a funeral for Yashan Robinson. Uh, he goes by Yaya, uh, and Yaya was 17 years old, and um, he was killed last Sunday uh, in, in the east end of Richmond, and I was part of the funeral celebration of his life yesterday. And um, it, was a, it was a powerful thing, and when you go to a funeral, um, and I'm sure you've been to some, people say the same kinds of things in those moments, Right? R.I.P., rest in peace. Well, he's in peace now. He's with God now. Um, he looks so peaceful. These are the things that people say at funerals. And, and I get what we mean. Like, life is hard. And in some, in some circumstances, it's harder and, and dark. And it's frustrating. And it's short. And sometimes it's tragically short. And so when we say rest in peace, we're saying, all right, for this boy, for this kid, there's, there's a peace there. There's, there's, uh, there's, um, there's an end to all the, 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 the suffering and, and an end to all the pain, and, and he gets a sense of, of peace. Um, but I think there's more going on there than, than that. You see, Yahya was born April 21st, 2001. And he died December 2nd, 2018. Those are the dates that will go on a grave. It'll say that, and there'll be a little dash there, and that's, that's his, his life. But on July 30th, 2016, 
Yaya and I and a few other people went down to the James River and we had an opportunity to, to baptize Yaya. Um, that day, we have, a, we have a picture of it, I want to put it up on the screen. That day, Yaya gave his life to Christ and was baptized in the James River, like so many of you have, been, uh, have done and have given your life to him. Um, and, and here's what happens when we're baptized. Paul tells us that just as Jesus is crucified and goes down into the grave and comes back up out of the grave, and in the same way when we are baptized, the old us is crucified, it goes down into the water, and then it comes back up out of the water, and we are a new creation. We are something new. We are above reproach. We are holy and blameless before God. Does that mean we blow it? Sure, we're going to blow it. Does it mean Yaya was perfect? No. He was an awesome kid. He could play. He was really great at basketball, wanted to be a professional basketball player. He had a huge smile. He'd laugh, joke around a lot, dance. He was the kind of person that would tease you, and then when you'd, like, start to get mad at him, he'd, like, make you feel good and, and like, could joke around with you. Like, he was a cool kid. But the truth is, what the, 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 the biggest thing that matters is that he was at peace with God because he gave his life to Christ. And, and, and any hostility, any brokenness between him and God was reconciled on, on that day of July of 2016. So how about you? Have you given your life to Christ? When we talk about peace on earth, is it real to you um, in that you've made a decision to follow after Jesus? You can get baptized here. Let's baptize you on Christmas Eve. You want to celebrate Jesus' birthday and we'll do, you know, peace on earth and mercy mild and all that kind of stuff. Um, that could be true for you. You could give your life to Christ. We could baptize you here and we could all celebrate together um, as a church. The truth is when Jesus died, he brought peace to us. We're not always going to feel that way um, and we will still see conflict and violence and, and war around us um, because he'll eventually deal with that too, and so, but, but not yet. Um, but positionally, objectively, our situation has changed. Christ has brought peace on earth, and he brought it for us, and he has reconciled us to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for taking the journey from heaven to earth and spending time with us, walking with us, being with us, and identifying with us. Um, and uh, Lord, I, I thank you for um, how you bring peace, how you make the relationship right between us and you, and how you bring us close to you and bring us into heaven. God, I, I, I pray for Yashan's family that, um, that is reeling and that feels uh, no internal sense of peace right now. I, I pray that they take comfort, as we all do, in the fact that um, Yahya had, um, had, had come to terms with you and that he had given his life to you and was baptized into you. Um, God, I, I pray you continue to do your work of healing in this community and that you will bring the internal sense of peace and calm um, to go along with the actual objective peace that we have because of you. In your son's name we pray, amen.